welcome to Crop It Like It's Hot, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and The Crop Tech Show and hosted by me, Alice Dyer. Now with harvest coming to a very early end for many and thoughts turning to next season and which varieties to grow, this month we're going to take a look at the world of plant breeding and selection. We're going to hear the challenges that plant breeders face in developing new varieties for the UK get an update on the AHDB recommended list and how that's adapting to all the changes in arable farming we're experiencing from policy to climate change and we're also going to get another update on what's going on with gene editing as there have been quite a few developments since the episode we did a year or so ago looking at the new technology. Don't forget, you can get one CPD point for tuning into the podcast. Just email your basis account number and the name of the podcast episode to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. And now to introduce my first guest today, he's been described as one of the UK's most disruptive wheat breeders, producing some very clean and high yielding variety. I've got Dr. Matt Curtin from DSV here. So Matt, thank you for coming on the podcast. First of all, I'm just intrigued to know how someone actually, you know, gets into a career in plant breeding. Yeah, so it was um, quite quite fortuitous, really. Um, I grew up on a small mixed farm in Somerset. We had dairy and beef cattle and grew wheat, among other crops. And obviously, we had a couple of cider orchards being in Somerset. Um, I didn't study agriculture, though. I went to Birmingham University and studied plant sciences. I just got into plants because I found that it was less frustrating because plants generally did what they were supposed to and weren't as random as animals. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed plant sciences and I loved being a student, so I stayed for a total of eight years at Birmingham, coming out with a PhD in crop physiology. I actually studied calcium transport in coriander. There aren't many jobs going in that area, so my <laughs> supervisor studied. Um, now he's, he suggested crop physiology might increase my chances of attracting an employer. Um, I contacted DSV initially just to find out more about breeding crops um, because I wasn't really aware of it. Um, And the chat just turned into an interview. um, And um, yeah, and and the rest is history. I still feel really blessed to have a job which kind of marries together my farming upbringing with my science education. And um, yeah, it's perfect, really. It's it's great to be solving practical problems um, like bringing improved varieties to farmers. Yeah, well, you've certainly done that because in the last few years, you've produced some extremely clean and high yielding varieties, um, most recently being Champion. So what is your focus um, on breeding at the moment? What kind of traits are you looking for? Uh, well, the day-to-day breeding program focuses on traits which leads lead to a recommended variety such you know that the the usual things such as yield resistance to the main diseases and so on um so you, you've got to tick all those boxes um for it to get noticed really um but alongside those i like to try adding in other less standard traits which i feel are becoming or will become more important um so things like drought tolerance which is you know pretty um topical at the moment um, and nitrogen use efficiency which is also a big one um, for this year because of things that are happening Um, and it may also be important to increase the micronutrient content of white flour um, as there seems to be a general appetite for naturally healthy foods rather than having to supplement our diets 
Um, and there may be other traits that I'm working on as well, but they'd be top secret. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and DSP is is a German company, but you're based in Oxfordshire. That's where your breeding station is. But why can't we just take varieties, you know, from the continent and use them here in the UK? Wheat as a species is very adaptable and can be grown at sea level and high altitudes, as well as near the equator to even inside the Arctic Circle. Um, however, wheat varieties are generally quite specific to their target region. Um, not only that, but some varieties are suited to certain soil types, managements, rotations, and so on. Some European varieties do grow okay over here, but not as well as varieties which are developed in the UK in the target environment. Um, you can develop generalist varieties which will perform well in most maritime climates. Um, for example, a UK variety doing well in Ireland, Denmark, Netherlands, those kind of places. Um, those are also target markets for my program, like uh, Champion, for example, was being grown in, in those places. And that's that's really good because you can maintain the variety and sell it in various markets rather than have to have a single variety for each, um, each situation. Yeah. Um, but you also have to think about end markets too. So a European wheat may grow well for a farmer here, but not be suitable for the UK market. Um, uh, that's particularly true of uh, bread wheats. So something that bakes a really good loaf of German bread or French bread may not work well in our system over here because we're really particular about our bread wheats. <laughs> so are we, are we more particular here about bread wheats than they are in Europe, would you say? In my understanding is is yes we are because it's um it's really interesting to me actually it's it's sort of it's it's social sciences in a way because in in France they they generally go and get their bread every day or every other day um, and so that that actually impacts the kind of wheats which are being developed um, whereas in this country um, because we do a weekly shop the bread has to last all week so that that affects the type of uh, wheat breeding that happens um, and it also has to be very precise and consistent um, at the wheat plant level as well as the flower level um, because we're we're churning out um, I don't know how many loaves an hour of these um, in these uh, bread mills uh, bread bakery sorry and um, and so it has to work every time so that the plants have to be really consistent the varieties have to be really consistent so that you don't suddenly get any surprises at the bakeries um, so it's that intense um, uh, white sliced um, bread production which means that the wheat varieties have to be really um, precise as well and I guess in terms of that um, consumer buying pattern it's more likely going to change for them on the continent than for us because we're probably never going to go back to buying you know a loaf of bread every other day um so in yeah. terms of kind of selecting traits of the future i know you said um you know when you're developing a variety it, it'll take about 10 years to develop so you kind of need to know what's going to be needed in 10 years time as one of your main challenges what what kind of things are you thinking about for I guess the next decade? Um, yeah, so predicting what might be useful for the future is difficult. Um, there's a lot of value in talking to others in connected industries and considering whether wheat could solve the problem. Um, 
with the seasons changing, we can look at countries which have now what we are predicted to have in the future regarding temperature, rainfall, and so on. Um, find out what pests they consider most important, um, what's limiting wheat growth, and so on. Um, that sort of tackles the things like you know, drought tolerance and nitrogen use efficiency, those sorts of things. Um, but I mean, this year, for example, we we saw quite a lot of stem rust, um, and that's due to the the temperatures that we are experiencing here um and that was that was quite striking in the field and and made me think well you know are we moving towards that kind of climate where stem rust is going to be more of a problem in the future is that something we need to start working on um and and there's all sorts of things like that that you have to sort of try and think you know are we moving in that direction um should we start working on them but there are other traits where you think well how much is it going to cost how much effort is involved um should we risk moving down that way or not? Um, so it is, it is tricky, but um, it's about talking to people and seeing what, what, what problems they have and how we can solve them. Yeah. And how do you manage things like um, disease resilience, I guess we'd call it? Um, you know, in recent seasons, we've seen some varieties with um, cougar parentage breaking down to disease. That must be a bit of a blow for you know a wheat breeder they produce this really good variety and then all of a sudden it starts breaking down yeah uh, it, it can be yeah a real real shame when you, you spend probably eight years to to bring something to to market and then something something goes wrong um and i guess it's just it's it's managed by ensuring that you don't just rely on one source of resistance um and I don't, I don't believe that the cougar resistance was actually down to a single gene because you, you did see differences in how the cougar derivatives reacted to the breakdown. Um, and that's that's just breeding. So the varieties take on traits from both parents. So growers shouldn't panic when they see a difficult variety in the pedigree of a new variety. So um, in that example, you know, uh, any varieties with cougar in the progeny, in the pedigree, sorry, coming forward, wouldn't necessarily have the same problem because the breeders will know about that now and they'll be looking for um, that septoria resistance. Um, and going back to different sources of resistance, um, take Theodore, for example. It's got fantastic septoria to desire resistance and I'd be a fool not to have crossed with it a lot, but I've also made sure that I'm crossing with other strong sources of septoria resistance so that uh, all my eggs aren't in one genetic basket. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's about just spreading that risk as we do with kind of any other input um, to prevent that resistance build-up. Yeah, exactly. And and for certain diseases, you can um, stack uh, markers or stack genes um, so that if you get a breakdown in one, you, you've got it backed up, um, the resistance sort of held up by another gene. Um, every time you do that, you do sort of add a bit of time to the to the production of these varieties, uh, but it does make them a bit more robust. Um, but of course, you know, it, it again, it's a balancing act because as breeders, we're, we're in a competitive um, industry and we want to get our uh, varieties to market as quick as possible. Yeah. Um, and a breakdown of a variety is, is something that is quite difficult, very difficult to, to predict. So, um, you know, you might have one risky strategy where you just get to market as quick as possible and hope for the best, um, or another way you, you take your time and stack up genes, um, but you might miss the boat. So, again, it's that's, um, that's a risk management as well. 
And this season, um, you know, the drought has been what we've all been worrying about. Is there potential for more drought resistant or tolerant crops in the near future? Yeah, definitely. So um, the John Innes Centre have done some work on producing um, genetic markers for drought tolerance. Um, so they've done a few trials over, over the last few years where they've looked at yield performance under drought conditions. And they've picked out some markers which, which are available for breeders, wheat breeders to use. Uh, so we're using those in our programme um, as a sort of targeted approach to looking at more drought tolerant varieties. But we're also um, breeding for drought tolerance as we go through these um, drought years. So that's in a way related to breeding for climate change. Um, as long as we don't get any drastic changes in, in seasons, um, which I, I guess we, we do see more and more these days, but the fact that our breeding nurseries and, and um, selection plots are in the environment, in the target environment. Um, for example, this year, any varieties which have done well, they will be um, drought tolerant if, if you have that physiological drought in the fields. So we are s selecting for that um, by having those varieties in the field in a drought situation. Yeah. Um, the, the, the changing seasons is is a tricky one because you can have, for example, barely many years uh, leading up to your application year. Um, so you're breeding a variety that does well in those those preceding years and then you're unlucky enough to have two drought years during your um, official trials and your variety doesn't do well and um, and so it's it's pulled it's discarded but the year after that might be the perfect year for it um, but that's just that, that's that's the system as it is and it's it's very difficult um, and uh, I guess one way of working around that is selecting lines which have done well in dry and wet years um, to try and sort of provide something for farmers that will do well in in both those situations yeah i guess that's the problem with working with our climate in the uk is that we can have really really wet years or really really dry years it's not kind of one extreme just of one of them yeah it it, it can be um quite difficult and i mean ideally you'd want in the breeding program to take everything forward each year um and then by the end of your years um in the breeding program before application you can see what's done well um consistently over those different years um but as we have trial sites all over the country and, and huge numbers to deal with that that becomes a bit prohibitive yeah. so you do have to just select the select the best um and if you if you have something that hasn't done well this year but it did really well last year, you might be I might be tempted to take that forward and see how it does next year, um, just to give it the benefit of the doubt. Um, and that's sort of similar once once it gets onto the RL, that's what they do. They do a five year average, so you're you're getting yield performance over over the last five years, and they've been some fairly different years with when the rain has come and when the rain hasn't come and the, and the temperatures. So that's that's a pretty good way of seeing what's consistent. And finally, are there any traits that we've kind of lost over the years that have been bred out of varieties that we're now trying to bring back because we've realised the value of them or it's perhaps becoming more relevant again? Yeah, so over time we've, we've bred um, 
for the UK situation as it is today, for, for farming practices as they are today and so on. Um, so we may have lost traits um, over the years by selecting for, for relevant traits now. Um, and if they've been lost over time, um, to get those traits back into breeding programs, we need to maintain a certain level of genetic diversity in the observation nurseries. So even wheats from the past or from the other side of the world may not have the trait we're looking for. So I'm adopting, and I'm sure the others are, um, a couple of other ways to introduce diversity. So the first is by using the NIAB synthetic hexaploids developed by Phil Howell and his team at NIAB. And the second is by crossing with the wild relative introgression lines from the King Laboratory at Nottingham University. So that introduces some some novel diversity from uh, grass species. And um, in the case of the NIAB synthetics, it, it recreates that natural hybridization event that happened about 10,000 years ago. So we are in a way resetting the genetic clock and, um, and we can start to select for today and the traits that we think might be important for the future. Um, so it's about, it, well, it, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack, but you need to make sure your haystacks are right before you start looking. <laughs> no, it's really interesting to hear kind of what goes on behind the scenes, because we obviously, we see the end product, but to actually hear the thinking behind it, it's really interesting. Yeah, and it's, it's um, there are some varieties out there that have Achilles heels and it's, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's a shame, but it's always difficult to try and get everything to line up in, in one variety. Um, and when you have almost everything, it, it would be a shame to not put that variety forward just because it had one, one drawback. So some, something's better than nothing, I suppose. Yeah. And do you think there'll ever be a time where you can kind of stop that compromise between traits and have a variety that has kind of everything we want from it? Or is that just not really... Yeah, I think that's that's definitely possible. Um, it's just uh, because we're dealing with so many, even in our small small nation, uh, comparatively small compared to some of the European countries, you've still got huge diverse range of soil types, management practices, and and so on, and disease pressures. So finding a variety that fits all of those situations um, is is always going to be quite tricky, um, and you do get a sort of a an average idea from from looking at the RL, um, so it is going to be difficult to get something that suits everyone. Um, but I think my advice to, to growers would just be to try different varieties, um, grow your tried and tested varieties that you can rely on, but also um, put a bit of the farm aside to try these new interesting varieties that are coming forward, because uh, a lot of work's gone into them to try and update what they're normally growing. Um, to something new and improved. So all we can ask as breeders is that the um, that the growers give it a go and see if it works for them. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Thank you. And now to introduce my next guest on today's podcast, I've got Dr. Paul Gosling here from AHDB, who is going to give us an update on the variety recommended lists. So, Paul, the recommended list scored quite highly in the um, recent HDB survey, which you must have been quite pleased about. Um, but I just wanted to talk about how it's kind of moving and changing with the times, both agronomically um, and also with things like input prices and a greater focus on sustainability. Um Starting with oilseed rape, obviously the main concern for growers in recent years has been establishment. And 
the holy grail would probably be you know a resistance or tolerance rating for flea beetle um is there any way that you're able to kind of come up with a scoring system that might indicate how resilient against flea beetle a a oilseed rape variety might be yes this is something we've been working on for the last two or three years in, in, in a number of different ways. One thing we have done is, is allow trials into the system um, that in previous years we wouldn't have allowed in because they've been damaged by flea beetle. Um, in the past, we were looking for perfect trials, but that, that clearly wasn't reflecting what was happening in commercial reality. So we've started to allow, allow trials in um, which which have had damage by flea beetle, and that starts to pull apart the varieties a bit. Um, although it the, the range in, in susceptibility varieties, I think, is still relatively small. I think perhaps the, the most susceptible material has disappeared, but I think we've still got a fairly narrow range. The other areas we've been looking at is whether we can um, identify varieties that are more vigorous. Many um, growers think that uh, a variety that is more vigorous in the autumn um, is able to grow away from flea beetle damage uh, more successfully. Uh, that, that has proved somewhat difficult. Um, one reason is because what vigor actually is, is, is not very well defined. Uh, everyone kind of knows what it is when they see it, but actually getting it defined in a way that we can get trial operators to measure in a consistent way is very difficult. We've, we've had a lot of discussions with the breeders to, to understand how they do it, and they all do it differently. Um, we have got some trials in the ground, but they've proved difficult. We get inconsistent results from trial to trial. And that suggests a big environmental um, impact on vigour, things like soil moisture, um, seed batches, uh, potential seed treatments. So it, it's proving difficult to get any consistent results, but we, we will continue with that work. Um, and we've, we've identified some work in France that's been done. So we're talking to people in France about what they're doing to try and identify vigour because they're, they're facing very similar um, issues. In, in terms of the spring... Um, flea beetle damage. We've, we, again, we've been working for a couple of years. Uh, we've worked some breeders to develop a protocol to look at varieties that might be able to be more resilient to the feeding of the uh, larvae. Um, there is some indication um, that some varieties can tolerate that feeding much better and compensate and, and help their yields hold up, while others suffer much more. Um, we think we've got, we've got a good protocol. Uh, unfortunately, the last couple of years, of course, we haven't seen very much flea beetle damage. Yeah. Um, and that's both in commercial crops and trials and so everything kind of looks resistant the last couple of years um, but we're going to persist with that work because we think it, when we get a year where we do have a lot of flea beetle in this year well, the, the conditions look um, good if I can put it that way for flea beetle we will we'll see if that protocol pulls the varieties apart properly um, but it, it's the usual it, you thing that happens, you start to do some research and something the problem disappears, but I'm sure it hasn't gone forever. I'm sure we'll see flea beetle back in a significant problem in the coming years. Yeah, I'm sure we will, unfortunately. Um, and also on oilseed rape, um, there's not that many conventional varieties left on the RL now, but those wanting to home save seed, you know, particularly in light of the establishment issues that we've just talked about, um, where are they going to go for information if there's only hybrids on the list in future? Yes, we, we have recognised this as an issue. We, we think we don't have very good information. We think there's about 40% of the all-situated area is still so conventional. 
and we recognised that it, it was looking like conventional varieties were, were going to disappear from the recommended list. So we changed our process slightly um, to make it easier for conventional varieties to get onto the list. So in the past, they've had to compete directly with the hybrids um, in order to get on the list. We, we've changed the criteria slightly, so they're competing more against our conventionals to get on the list. Uh, and I think you will see some more conventionals on the list um, in the next two or three years. Not a huge number because, frankly, there aren't very many coming from the breeders. Yeah. If we look at the varieties that are coming onto the national list, they're, they're completely dominated by the hybrids. But there are still some conventionals coming through, and hopefully we, we can get some more of those onto the list. We, and we, we've got that system under review. We made it to tweak it a little bit more. Um, obviously, we don't want poor conventionals coming on, but we do need to keep those, those good conventionals, make sure they've, they've got an opportunity to get on the list because we do know growers want that type of variety. Yeah. And why is it that breeders aren't looking at conventionals so much if the the area is still quite high? Um, I think it's because the hybrid breeding methodology, and I don't know too much about the technical details of it, makes it much easier to get new traits into hybrids. Okay. So we've seen things like turbulence, virus resistance, pod shutter resistance um, coming into uh, it. So in some way, like I said, I don't know the other technical details, it's easier to get those traits into hybrids and obviously make a variety more attractive. So I think that is a, is a big driver on why, why the breeze have gone down that route. And obviously those traits are often things which growers are looking for. So it's not necessarily all bad that we've got a lot of hybrids because it is bringing those traits in. And those traits do eventually feed through to the conventionals as well. Um, but yes, it is very much dominated by hybrids. Yeah, okay. And then um, moving on to wheats, um, we've seen, you know, some breakdowns in disease resistance um, in recent seasons. And uh, AHDB obviously came up with the one-year resistance ratings, which have been helpful. Um, Are you expecting more shifts in resistance ratings this year for any varieties? Um, I I think what we'll see this year um, is... The varieties, their the, the normal three-year rating, moving closer to what we saw with the one-year ratings last year. I think from our field team, um, we'll go out and inspect all the trials that they've seen a very similar pattern to what we saw last year in terms of varieties that have cougar in the parentage. Um, obviously, Septoria hasn't been such an issue this year, um, but I, I think we'll see those those ratings and those cougar uh, parented varieties slipping a little bit more again and again, let's say, coming closer to those one-year ratings because obviously now they'll have two years of, of this new strain in, in their data set. Um, but I, I don't think we're going to see any surprises, just just another sort of shift in those ratings. Yeah. And are there any other crop diseases kind of showing up red flags for new strains or anything coming through? Not this year, no. We've seen nothing uh, to alarm us in terms of brown rust and yellow rust. Um, I think on some interesting things happening with barley diseases, uh, something's going on with net blotch. Um, we're seeing a lot of the, the, the different types of net blotch now. Um, but I think uh, no one's really got an understanding of what's going on there. We're not seeing breakdown as such. We're just, the disease is obviously evolving, but it, it's not really... Um, resulting in breakdown so it's really something we need to keep an eye on and then um on to uh the kind of environmental and social and financial side of things um establishment methods are obviously changing quite a lot a lot of people are looking at you know direct drilling and regen and things like that um 
would there ever be a time where you say, you know, these varieties work particularly well in a direct drilled scenario or these are better in maybe a ploughed scenario? I think that's something which could come. Um, obviously, particularly on the regen side, it, there's such a huge range of practices um, that, that fall under that umbrella and, and trying to look at how it, all of those impacts on, on variety performance would, would be impossible. I think the, the one we're focusing on at the moment is conservations because that is that kind of goes more, more broadly than the, the regen side. Um, in the past, we, we, well, we still don't specify a particular type of conservation that must be done. We, we ask the trial or we allow the trial operators to just do whatever conservation the farmer is, is doing on a particular farm they're using. But in the past, we haven't collected that information. Um, so from this year onwards, we've started to collect that, that primary cultivation information. You can actually see that now in our harvest results. We're, we're publishing that. And once we've got a couple of years of data, we can start to look at that to see if um, that primary cultivation does have an effect on the performance of the varieties. My personal view is I suspect we won't be able to pull anything out um, from the background noise of, of variation in varietal performance. Um, but, but it's possible we will, but we'll have to wait and see. I, I think that running sort of parallel trials under different um, tillage regimes is, is not um, something that we could do. We, we, the, the budget simply isn't there. Yeah. Um, and there's an extent to which the RL not only can't do everything, we shouldn't do everything because there is a space in the market for, for distributors and the like to do that, to take the RL results and then you look at them in different contexts uh, and that's where um, other parts of the industry can add to the recommended list and well, we certainly don't have a problem with that because as I say we, we haven't got the budget to do everything yeah yeah there's only so many trials you can actually do. yeah um, and you might have just answered this question as well but sustainability ratings or anything looking at kind of nitrogen use efficiency is that an area that you might look at or again is that kind of one for maybe the wider industry to be looking at yeah the, the wheat committee have been very interested in nitrogen use efficiency um, and we did a, a small literature review and, and spoke to the breeders about it um, last year and, and the conclusion we, we came to and the, and the breeders were very strongly the opinion that They've spent a lot of money at the, the big international breeders um, trying to look at this, um, and it doesn't have a very strong genetic control. So they, they, I think most, it's only in wheat, they've more or less given up trying to breed for nitrogen use efficiency. Uh, I mean, one, one of the things which, which did come out of that literature review was that uh, disease resistance is very important in nitrogen use efficiency because obviously disease takes away um, greenly fair, it reduces your yield, and, and so you, you're you're losing um, you're, you're you're losing that, that efficiency there. So really, for a variety that yields that higher on, on the same inputs, that variety is going to be the most um, efficient in terms of inputs, not just nitrogen use, but all your inputs. Um, so I, I don't think we're going to get that sort of rating a variety X has a higher efficiency than variety Y. What we are seeing is, is more interested in different crops, so things like rye and triticale, um, which are perhaps more uh, efficient in terms of the use of resources. And, and we, 
it, we are responding to that by increasing the number of trials. We have increased the number of trials in that. There is increasing, increase, increasing interest in those varieties and um, for various uses because they are more resource use efficient. Um, and then finally, um, just on this year's list, are there any varieties that you know particularly stand out for you? Um, I think it's a little bit early to tell uh, yet for this year. Um, I think that the things that people are looking for, sort of new group one wheat, I think we're a little way off from that. Um, I think um, in the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot more uh, varieties come through with BYDV resistance, both in wheat and barley. Um, but I don't think there are any, any particular varieties that have caught my eye yet this year. Um, perhaps this year is going to be a quieter year in terms of new varieties. Yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. The recommended list is obviously quite a mainstay for growers and it's served people very well in the past. But how do you make sure that it keeps serving farmers, you know, in the way that it's designed to? We have three committees that, um, that run the RL and, and they do have growers and agronomists on them. Um, and, and they obviously provide a lot of um, steer in terms of, of what growers are looking for. But we also do uh, periodically... Uh, do wider surveys. The plan is to do one of those next year. We'll be going out to growers, to levy pairs, to ask them what they're looking for from the RL, uh, where there are areas that we're missing that they might want work doing, uh, just to make sure, as you say, we're, we're keeping on track and we're not sort of drifting off um, the things that levy pairs are wanting from the RL. And now, finally, we have Sarah Raffan, who is a molecular biologist at Rothamsted Research, and she's going to give us a rundown on the latest in gene editing. We have actually covered um, gene editing in the podcast before, but it was probably a couple of years ago now. Um, and I know that there were recently some law changes in England. Um, so I wanted to know what exactly does that mean? Does that legislation change mean um, kind of in practice? Well, at the moment, we have a change for research purposes only. Um, so now we can put genome edited, but not GM, uh, plants in the field uh, for research purposes. Um, so this is what we call a qualifying higher plant. This is a plant that will have changes in it, uh, genetic modification. But these are ones that could have occurred naturally, and they do not contain any GM elements, as we would know it, so foreign DNA. Um, and that's the change that we have currently. Um, for research purposes only, but the government is working on the Precision Breeding Bill, and that is in Parliament at the moment, um, and that looks at commercialisation um, and kind of taking that forward outside of just research purposes. And do we have any idea what the time frame for that might be? Um, it's, so it's gone through its second reading, I think. It's, um, I'm not sure exactly what stage it's at, um, I think I could find out, but it's um, still open for amendments um, and it's not gone into its third reading yet. Not entirely certain what that means, but I know that it can still be changed at the moment, but it is making its way through. Obviously, the government is um, a little bit preoccupied at the moment. So. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a lot going on. <laughs> there is. Um, so I, honestly, I don't know how long that will take, um, but it has started and it is moving. So. Okay, one to keep an eye on then. Yeah. And just to clarify, um, before we go on, the difference between GM and GE is that a GM plant would have a gene inserted from a separate species, whereas GE 
would be a gene from the same species? Yeah, we call them transgenes in science, trans meaning across genes, obviously, as the genetic element. Um, and anything that contains a transgene would be considered a GM. So, yeah, these are from different species. Basically, if it couldn't have got that gene naturally through uh, natural breeding, um, it would be considered a transgene. Okay. So if you crossed a zebra and a horse, then that would be <laughs> GE. But if you crossed, I don't know, a zebra and a cow, that would be GM. Exactly. If you're introducing cow genetic material into a zebra, that is definitely GM. Yeah. Um, but if you're moving genes from a horse to a zebra, they could breed naturally. So that wouldn't be GM. Yeah. Okay. So what difference exactly will this make um, for you as a researcher in you know, in terms of your kind of ability to speed up the work that you're doing? It will make it a lot faster and, and also a lot um, cheaper in a way. Um, we can test out more traits and put them in the field. So for plant breeding specifically, we can test out a lot more now, a lot faster, and we can really pass those traits on to the plant breeders faster. Um, at the moment, testing things uh, or before the regulation change, if we were testing things that were genome edited, it had to be done under glasshouse conditions um, in containment or as a GM field trial, which is extremely expensive. There's very little space for that. Um, so now this allows us to just test more things faster, which is, I think, really important given the changing climate at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And... In terms of this technology, where do you think most of the focus will lie for researchers? Do you think it will be, um, I know that you at Rothamsted, you guys are looking at um, kind of healthier food, um, but do you think there'll be, you know, much greater focus on more resistant varieties or um, more drought tolerant varieties and things like that? I think we see that with uh, plant breeding at the moment um, in that they're looking for disease resistance uh, and you know, climate stability or climate adaptability um, because they're bre already breeding for varieties that are drought tolerant, um, heat stress tolerant and that are more resistant to emerging disease pressures. Um, so I think that will continue and this will just allow us to screen through a lot of you know, resistance traits faster. Um, and be able to kind of make that a bit more sustainable for breeding. And am I right in thinking Rothamsted is one of the few places that actually has field trials of gene-edited crops? Yep, we are. Um, we have the first, uh, Europe's first wheat genome-edited field trial at the moment um, that's just about to be harvested. Um, and then we have uh, both the uh, GM and genome-edited crop field trials ongoing. Okay, and what exactly are you looking at in them? Um, the current wheat field trial that we have at the moment is our low asparagine, low acrylamide wheat, uh, where we've reduced the asparagine concentration in the grain um, with the aim of reducing the acrylamide forming potential. Acrylamide being a carcinogen, so not a very nice chemical. Um, so we're creating wheat lines that don't have as much of this in it or cannot form it to the same levels. Um, and this is important because there are regulations on the amount of acrylamide that you can have in food. Um, and there are tests now for acrylamide, but also for asparagine. And these tests are getting faster, cheaper and easier. So it's kind of trickling down the food chain and it's now becoming a farmer's problem. So we are uh, developing lines that are lower uh, in this precursor, so cannot form acrylamide in the same way. And now that there's been this change to regulation, have you got any kind of pipeline traits um, or you know plants that you, you're planning to trial? 
Um, so in our group, I mean, we're looking at uh, also increasing the lysine content um, in wheat, which is another amino acid, um, but that would be increasing um, lysine. So lysine is a major limiting amino acid. Um, it causes uh, human malnutrition uh, around the world, so not so much here, but around the world. But it's um, a major limiting amino acid is animal feed. So a lot of farmers have to supplement their uh, feed um, with things like soy, which is imported and expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we can increase the lysine content in our own crops, we're not going to be reliant on expensive imports as much. Yeah, and I guess it's a win environmentally as well. Yeah, exactly. So it's a, there's quite a big benefit to that one. So we are looking at developing those using genome editing. Um, in, well, we're doing it at the moment, really. Yeah. Um, and I think you probably covered this at the beginning, um, but what other laws um, need to change before we can grow these crops in our uh, in our own fields, you know, as farmers? Um, so at the moment, we've got the Precision Breeding Bill going through the um, through Parliament, and we really need to see how that um, that comes out um, for what that will allow. Um, and this is obviously only looking at England as well. This is not looking at Wales or Scotland or Ireland. Yeah. So this is England-focused, um, and we will see how, how that will come out. It is still open to amendments, so we, we don't know what the final product of that will be. Um, but if that allowed commercialisation, then you could farmers could then grow genome-edited wheat or crops in, in their fields. Um, obviously, there's a bit of a time that we do need to then develop those if that goes ahead. Um, but that, that could bring that one stage closer. Um, and obviously, this is just limited to what they call precision breeding. Um, so it, just, it doesn't cover anything like GM at the moment. Yeah. And so um, kind of forgetting the regulations and stuff, how soon could these um, traits that you're looking at be integrated into varieties and what's kind of the process once you found a valuable trait is that intellectual property then you know passed on to plant breeders or what like what's the process there um so this project that i'm working on is sponsored by plant breeders um so they have rights to anything that um we generate um Robin said do, do work really closely with plant breeders and we do tend to hand over anything that we could could be considered useful as we're a government-funded research institute so it really is in public benefit to really pass those traits along Um, and so we would hand over anything of interest after the field trials to um, plant breeders but for these lines we're really it's still in the experimental stage so we are still in the first year of field trials um, so we really need to see how they perform um, before plant breeders will invest in that uh, and getting that into elite lines Consumer. Um, and when at the moment there is no um, requirement in the legislation for the labelling of products that come out of it, we'll see if that changes. Um, and that is really a consumer issue and seeing what, what consumers are more comfortable with. Yeah, there's a lot of regulatory fine tuning to do still, isn't there? I think um, with this, because it does take a while, even if, you know, they said, okay, tomorrow everyone can grow genomedicine crops across the UK. It still takes a while to develop them. Um, and it, so I still, even if the regulations change, there is still time um, to work it all out because we don't have a stock of genomedicine crops waiting to be grown. We do have to develop them. So we're still before that stage where, you know, UK plant breeders would be doing any kind of gene edited trials. We're still before that. Okay. Um, there are obviously across the world 
yeah. palm breeders doing genome-edited crop field trials, but not here in the UK. Exciting times ahead. Thanks, Sarah. And thank you, everyone that tuned in, listened to today's podcast. That's all we've got time for for today, but we will see you next time. <laughs>